This podcast contains language that is not appropriate for children, including jizz-draped piss candle, cock bandit, and metric fuckton. I would have let out with metric fuckton because otherwise this is, there's just like no chill on that. Oh. <laughs> you know what? And I don't know how our sponsor tonight is going to feel about that. Probably, probably really a- bad. Probably really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tonight's episode of the Science Enthusiast Podcast is brought to you by the alt-right. You know that kid who didn't pay attention to U.S. history class in high school and the one who would skip class or fall asleep? Well, now they have their own spinoff show called the alt-right, since they want to combine the failed ideas of Nazis, who had almost absolute control, and the Confederacy, who wanted smaller and less involved government. Combining these two ideologies literally does not make any fucking sense, but far be it for me to tell a racist what to think. The alt-right. I did not see that coming. Oh, I see what you did there. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Science Enthusiast Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I am joined by my, eh, okay, friend Natalie. Thank you for that amazing introduction. I'm super happy to be here. Spoiler alert, you're the one that wrote it. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I write <laughs> I write all the Google Docs. I am I am the keeper of the Google Docs. It's We have we have a fucking network of them now too, because now we have like our Google Docs. We have a Google Doc just to just to track all our Google Docs. To sort the Google Doc. It's called archives. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's the podcast archives and we, we are like thir- we're over thirty Google Docs at this point, so yeah, can you believe you've had to do this with me every week for like this is lots of weeks. This is months. <laughs> there's a there's a divorce joke in there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where it's at. I, I don't I don't know, but like, but let can we stay together for the kids? Like, for the, I mean, I did for that the... for I did that for a few years. <laughs> oh man, I shouldn't let's, laugh about it. Let's stay together for the listeners. Let's stay together for the listeners. <laughs> All of them. All right. So you're, we're not going to do a God of the Week this week because um, I'm just lazy, I guess. But you're, you're going to talk about something. Yeah. I had a, there was a comment today on, it was actually a Venn diagram that you shared. I fucking love Venn diagrams. And the, the comment. So, oh, so this is actually my fault. Yeah. This yeah. You were the. Uh, Maybe maybe just the catalyst here. Yeah, the yeah. catalyst. So, uh, bless her heart here, no punctuation left on this. You atheists love bringing up God. You are a hypocrite to atheism. But deep down in your heart, you know there is a God. He is coming soon. The pauses were, were my interpretation of her hitting inner, but not using any punctuation in there. I have to assume that's how... She says that when she talks. So, yeah, my only problem with that, every single generation ever has always said that God or Jesus are coming. And when militant Christians, yes, I said militant Christians, say this to an atheist, they're doing so in a passively threatening manner in an attempt to bully the atheist into subscribing to their beliefs. So the difference between most atheists, and again, I'm saying most atheists, the ones that aren't dicks, and militant Christians, again, the Christians that are dicks, 
is that we aren't the ones making threats. We aren't the ones trying to control other people's behaviors, and we aren't the ones telling people what they should believe. They are literally trying to tell us what to believe in an attempt to threaten us or bully us into believing that this sky wizard is coming. And if God does come, then great. I'll believe he's real. I will be one of the first people to post all about how I was wrong on this. What won't change for me is the level of respect I have for this supposedly all-knowing and powerful being who made the decision to not only create cancer, but also give it to kids. And this same being who designed a world where we have to kill things to eat them. And we're even like, we have to eat at all because the, there's a whole world hunger thing, you know, that's going on in some places. Yeah. I mean, he also decided to make pain. You know, can we, because can we, he, just, we just say he's a dick. He's a dick. Yeah, that's he's a, dick. a dick. Yeah. So he, in the the whole thing is like he's like the author here. He's the he's writing the story, and so he made all these things, but didn't have to. These were all conscious decisions he made. Things that he wanted to have happen. He wanted pain to exist. He wants people to get cancer. He wants kids to get cancer and die for. Absolutely no reason other than slash LOL, I guess. These are all things that this dick decided to do and didn't have to do. So even if God does come back, great. I don't give a shit. I'd rather go hang out with Satan. At least they have hookers and beer. Tonight, we are thrilled to be joined by Matthew O'Neill. Matthew is an activist, theologian, and teacher. He's the author of several books, including Afterlife, Solving Science and Religion's Great Disagreement. Um, And just before we get into things, thank you to David G. McAfee for making the intro um, between us and Matthew. And we're super happy to have you here tonight, Matthew. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited to be on. I love this show. So it's, it's like... Very excited and happy to be talking with you guys. Yeah, you've actually listened to some of this, so uh, some of what we've done. So sorry. No, no, please. <laughs> Thank you. And, I don't, I don't, and we've I don't know we've to... become we've become Twitter friends in the process, and I think survived the election together in the past week. Yes. Through through memes and gifs and just yeah, any image of burning stuff, I guess, <laughs> is pretty much where we are. Um, so I That's like what you call a metaphor. Yeah. You know, so anyways, you, since you listen to the show, you know, I always like to kind of get people's origin stories, whether it's like their atheist origin story or intro to skepticism, whatever. So with you, I mean, you are a scholar of the Bible, but you're an atheist, right? Yes, I am an so, atheist. Yes. So I, I would just like to kind of know, you know, for our audience, a little background, like what brought you there to where you are today, studying the Bible, writing these kind of books, you know, what, what's your path that took you there? Yeah, sure. So um, one, one quick thing uh, I, I feel is necessary for me to throw out there is that I am not yet a scholar. I am working in that direction. There's actually like specific criteria I need to meet. Okay. Before I am there. Um, so 
yeah, so I just got to throw that out there. I'm not there yet, working towards it though. Okay. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I, um, so basically, I grew up in a in a pretty strict Roman Catholic household. I'm actually one of ten children, if that's any indication of how Catholic <laughs> we were. Um, but but so I um, I actually ended up attending for both my undergraduate and graduate degrees. Um, the the same Catholic school. Uh, it's called St. Michael's College, which is uh, pretty close to where I was born and raised. And um, the the very interesting thing about that school was, even though it was a religious school, it was it was incredibly liberal. Uh, I mean, they had like an LGBTQ community. Um, they had like ally safe spaces and and all that. Like they were very very progressive for being uh, Roman being, Catholic. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and so I, uh, the, sort of like the big breakthrough for me in terms of like gearing towards skepticism was, uh, as part of the undergraduate curriculum, like everyone had to take religious education courses and having grown up Roman Catholic, I was like, well, I'll just take all the Christianity courses because those will probably be the easiest for me. And mm-hmm. I was completely <laughs> short-sighted in, in that idea um, or just way off the mark in general because th- there's so much in there that people just don't realize are in there. And so, um, you know, I took an Old Testament course. I took an intro to Christianity course. And in my senior year, because I, like most lazy people, did all of my like ma- like curriculum towards my major first yeah. and then put off the stuff I didn't want to do until the end. So I took mm-hmm. a New Testament course my senior year, and the the professor who taught it was a was a Catholic priest, and he got up in front of the class and he was giving us this lecture about Revelation, and he sort of stopped every, what he was saying and said, you know, I just got to like preface everything else I'm about to say with saying that this is all malarkey, this is all bullshit, and it was <laughs> like crazy for me to think like not only is a professor at a at a Roman Catholic school telling me something out of the Bible is bullshit. It's a priest. I know, like, does like that actually happens? Like, I'm that's shocking, sort of, right? Yeah, it's just like the last person you would. It's you know, it's like your mother confirming, yes, babies come from storks. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it was just, it was mind blowing to me. Like, wow, okay, so not everything in the Bible is literal. I mean, I I knew that well in advance anyway, but it was just weird to hear that from a priest. So I sort of had this taste of skepticism over the years. My faith sort of teetered between like cafeteria Catholic and then being really devout, cafeteria Catholic being really devout. And um, once I finished college, I was really sort of in this more deist type of perspective, like, well, I believe in a God, but, you know, I don't believe in all the the BS that the church really advocates for. And uh, so a co- about a year or two after that, um, I was... Uh, I was at that point married with my first child and uh, my, 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 this was my first wife. I've since divorced and remarried, but, um, but I had seen a book going into a Barnes and Noble one day that just was called God, the failed hypothesis. And, you know, I had had some passing interest in theology, but Mm -hmm. didn't really invest too much time into it. Uh, But so as a Valentine's day gift, my, wife bought this book for me and gave it to me and it was by Victor Stenger uh and after reading the first couple chapters like I just remember being like wait oh my god this makes so much sense and there's all these like citations and I can follow where this goes to and these look like legitimate sources 
And so this book really like opened the door for me into like not only skeptical thinking, but really accepting that, oh my God, there, there isn't a God (laughs) and like all that other. And so I started being like, well, what about Jesus? Well, if God's out the window, then so is Jesus too. And I had this like mini meltdown and, um, and you know, I just, I basically drank myself into a coma every night for the next (laughs) month because it was so difficult for me to accept. But at that point, after I finished reading, I was like, that's really crazy. And I want to know so much more. So I just went out and started reading. And the stuff that really, that I really started gravitating towards more was stuff very specifically around theology and around talking about the different concepts and the different beliefs and then finding out, oh, well, some of these beliefs aren't actually in the Bible, but stemmed from later church fathers. And these were the circumstances around their time and things started making more sense. And like the more and more I read about stuff, I started picking up on these little things that most people don't really notice reading through the Bible. Um, like one of them, as an example, is, you know, when Jesus uh, goes into Jerusalem for the Passover feast right before he's executed, you know, the Jews are really welcoming him in and, you know, here comes the Messiah, here comes the king. And then when Pilate brings him out in front of the crowd and says, you know, this man says he's your Messiah, suddenly the same group of Jews are saying, he's wicked, crucify him. And, and Hashtag not my God. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, oh, well, that's so weird. I never noticed that before. And so that stuff just is really what a, attracted me to it. So I, um, I actually made a comment in an article that I had written and is up on uh, David McAfee's site, which is, you know, I had all this, um, all this exposure to, to information around science that really helped me lose my faith but I'm instead going out and showing, you know, the theology, the religious side of things and being like, this is why this isn't real. Um, so that's sort of what got me to where I am now with writing these books and pursuing the PhD. So, yeah. Well, no, it's it's a, it's like just a really interesting story how you just through your own study, essentially, came to these realizations about beliefs that you'd held and and that you didn't f- like really fight it or did, or did you feel yourself fighting it at times? Like that you want, like, did you feel like you wanted to believe still, or were you, did you feel really open to just letting the reality hit? Well, I definitely still wanted to believe because, you know, it's, it's much more comfortable uh, thinking that, you know, there's someone watching over me. There's someone, you know, who's, you know, there's a deity or there's otherworldly things uh in it's supernatural things that are watching over me and you know when i die there's going to be a place for me to go to uh and you know death isn't the end for me you know it's it's this really sort of selfish feeling of like i i want to know that i have protection i want to know that someone's looking out for me and i want to know that when i die that's not the end of me um but i mean even when that first kicked in i mean because it, it happened while i was reading Vic, uh the god the failed hypothesis that I was just like, no, this this can't be real. This can't be real. And it's like, well, it clearly is real because there's examples that he gives yeah. in citations. So like there's demonstrable proof that, you know, these things that I believe in don't exist. So yeah. you you kind of touched on this a little bit uh, in this. It's something that I've always tended to avoid when uh, I guess we'll say debating somebody uh, regarding religion. I don't, I don't consider it to be an honest debate because – it's it's we're we're talking almost two different languages. We're talking one that's evidence based and one that is not belief based. But, yeah, belief based. But you you mentioned you know like uh, 
as in your story there, you're talking about how God isn't, you know, you realize like, you know, God isn't real. Jesus isn't real. Is there from, from like what you've done, I've always avoided talking about, you know, if Jesus is real or not, because there's some evidence, or at least I've, from what I've uh, read and understand, there's some evidence that he is, but there's also, you know, the, the hanging question that he might not be. And I, and I've always felt like it's, it's not even worth debating that with somebody because I'll, I'll let you have that one because if, if, if I do debate, well, Jesus wasn't real, then that get, you know, potentially gives you a win for the, for the person that's arguing in favor of existence, gives them a potential win in that, in that specific argument. So they, you know, then they feel more empowered, more emboldened that, yeah, I proved this atheist wrong. So I guess my question is, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts just about that, about, about me basically pussing out of even debating it, but also like, I mean, do you, do you think that, that he was actually somebody that walked around and, and talked, uh, or, or do you think that he just completely just figurative or however they, they want to say it? Sure. Um, so I, I kind of lean and I say kind of, I'll explain in a second. I, I lean more towards the idea that there, uh, there is a possibility that there could have been, uh, a historical figure known as Jesus of Nazareth. Um, mm-hmm. the, the problem is though, that, um, what we're, what we're dealing with is that we have to consider that we're, we're, we can't put our modern day understandings of what the evidence is for, for someone existing or not existing back on those times, because there's, there's a whole bunch of problems that really stack up on this issue. And, um, and I, I remain more agnostic about this issue purely because it's even though I feel like the evidence can uh, pose itself to be there, like there there is some evidence to suggest that someone along those lines did exist. It's really difficult to tell. Um, and uh, you know, there's the the obvious that you know we lacked photography and video cameras and audio recording devices. But I've, but was, I've seen pictures it, of Jesus. <laughs> Which, interestingly enough, is actually more of a depiction of a pope's son than it is the actual historical Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, oh, no, Jesus was white. <laughs> and blonde and blue-eyed. And, yeah, like he, he looked and, like... And like yeah. ribs, like my man's like, he hits the gym on the rag. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but so, um, two people have really, like, helped steer my, my vision uh, or my position on this issue. Uh, one is Matt Dillahunty, uh, cause he has said, you know, I rely on the experts who really have studied this field and know more about it. Um, yes, there's some bias in there, but there's some bias on the opposite end too. the people who advocate that Jesus did not really exist. Um, so that's uh, on both ends of it. However, um, it, the historical process is really flawed because it's not like the sciences and it's not like mathematics where we can demonstrate with hundred uh, percent certainty what did or did not happen at a certain point in time. It's more of a, um, it's more of a best guesstimate. It's like we have all these pieces of evidence that suggest this is what could have happened, but we can't know for sure. And there's problems even with the, with the historical evidence that we have that does suggest that Jesus existed because I mean, from a historical perspective, you know, the big issue is that the literacy rates are, 
are incredibly diminished back during this time. Um, it was really a skill that was reserved for the financial elite. So the only people we really have any records from or of are really from the financial elite or from people who really were noteworthy in history. Um, and so Jesus was very likely a small town person from this uh, area right outside of Galilee called Nazareth, which wasn't even anywhere in the field of vision of the Roman Empire because it was way out of the way of Jerusalem, probably the one area in that region they would have gone to only because there was a huge financial gain to be made out of it. And even if they could have made it out that far, they wouldn't have anyway because they had leaders in those areas who would, you know, report back to the Roman Empire and bring taxes to them and so on and so on. So, um, so you know, literacy rates are almost non-existent. So no one would have been able to really read or write during that time, um, especially being a sort of out-of-the-way village. Anyone who could read and write were very far away from there. And this is why we don't have any any writings about Jesus until at the very earliest 20 years after his death, at least with, um, with the apostle Paul. So it's, it's just like, we, we do have some stuff to suggest that he was there, but it's very far removed from when the historical Jesus would have lived. Um, it's all at least secondhand, if not third, fourth, fifth hand accounts. Um, and people are putting their own political and religious agendas and priorities into it. So uh, long story short, there's evidence that might suggest a historical Jesus existed, but we can't rely on it with 100% certainty because of factors like that. Well, and then, and so even still, if if there was the historical Jesus that existed, I mean, when we when we think of Jesus or when people who are, you know, essentially worshiping Jesus think of him, they're thinking like loaves and fishes and, you know, like yeah. walking on water and doing all these supernatural things and, and just not and not taking any of that. Like it like it doesn't actually matter if there was a historical person named Jesus um, who was, you know, stories were told that were essentially a, like Scripture and those stories, they're products of the environment that in which they're created, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. So then, and then, you know, get, throw, throw some of the supernatural things in there, too, for the people who are following it. But, but it's like, that, that stuff just didn't happen. Yeah, and, exactly. Like, go figure, this, you know, magic stuff wasn't real. Well, I, I still, I remember um, there was a quote I remember from an episode of Bullshit with Penn and Teller um, that, I, I mean, I obviously don't remember the exact quote, but it was essentially like Penn saying that the the easiest way to like turn someone into an atheist is like for them to read the Bible. Yeah. Like, act, like actually read the Bible. Because, I mean, even like when, when we're going to now talk a little bit about like this what the Bible says about heaven and hell and all the stuff. I mean, it's not what people think it is, right? Like exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, the things that people are essentially kind of preparing themselves for and waiting for in this sort of otherworldly pleasure that they'll receive after death and all of that, like it's, they maybe need to read the Bible a little more closely. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's one of the problems with things like, the afterlife, you know, people would be really surprised to see what is, or um, actually more case in point, what isn't there. Um, and so, you know, what people think is in there is is stuff that comes from, um, you know, different interpretations and different cultural shifts and historical shifts. And, 
you know, how people's own circumstances really contribute to the narrative that then becomes part of the, really the oral tradition that is the biblical narrative that isn't present in the actual physical form. So, you know, people have talked about, you know, what was the, you know, Bar Ehrman put out a book very recently about what the oral tradition was around Jesus before it made it into the written form. And that's sort of what's going on now is we've, we've really departed pretty significantly from the written tradition and that oral tradition is really what has taken command over it. And, you know, if you had Kirk Cameron actually read some of the stuff he's spouting about in these videos that he puts out, yeah. he, I, I would like to think he would change his tune or maybe he would just say, you've got the wrong translation. Who knows? So, well, yeah, because it seems like the, the faith has sort of evolved based on culture and, and just whatever people have created rather than what's in the actual text. And and so, so what I'm hearing you say is that we shouldn't check all girls before they get married to make sure that they're virgins. Is that is that how we shouldn't be doing that? Well, Donald Trump would urge otherwise, but uh, <laughs> but yes, we, twenty minutes, twenty <laughs> minutes, we made it twenty minutes without talking about it. <laughs> hey, it's a, it's a record in in our recent episodes. I, um, I broke the seal. <laughs> but but really, like it. What what is actually in and, and we can start we can start talking about this now where you know people have these ideas of what of what the afterlife is or isn't um like can you can you talk a little bit about what like it, you can either go what does the Bible say or what doesn't the Bible say I guess whichever one because you know sure sure yeah, yeah. so um, I I can start very explicitly with what the Bible doesn't says and that's generally what people in mainstream society, the regular lay person assumes the Bible talks about. So any concept of, um, of heaven and a, a realm above the earth where human souls go to when they die, and the soul even itself is sort of not even really present, at least not in the form that we think of. You know, there's not this, um, this immaterial thing that just departs from our body that contains our consciousness and goes up into the clouds. But really, nor is there this this pit that everyone goes to and suffers in for all of eternity either. So these concepts that, that uh, the mainstream believer really has about heaven and hell, really the majority of people, I think, uh, these concepts that they have aren't present in the Bible. And so what we actually find when we go in and look at the Bible and, and what it says about these concepts is, um, I mean, first, any concept both of eternal suffering or an eternal paradise joined by God is completely absent. What we find instead is this sort of Greco-Roman concept of the afterlife where they had Hades, and Hades was this, uh, this communal uh, after or underworld afterlife type of concept where there was a deity of some type that watched over the, the dead in the underworld. And this deity was called Mot, who was, who was, you know, in derived from the Hebrew death. Uh, so, so this God known as death was the one who, who reigned control over, uh, over Sheol. And so, um, after a period of time when the, uh, the Israelites were brought into exile, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians in the uh, early 6th century BCE, um, 
the Sheol suddenly wasn't enough for the Israelites. And they thought, you know, we can't share our afterlife with, uh, with the people who are uh, denigrating us, with the people who have taken us out of our homeland and taken us away from what they believed to be the land where their God lived. So Sheol suddenly started having these, uh, these different layers to it. And the further down you went, the worse off you were. I mean, we're not talking fire and brimstone yet, but you know, we're still talking a separation and a sort of hierarchy of who was more righteous in, in terms of being obedient to the Israelite God, Yahweh. Uh, and touching upon that subject too, it's also important to note that there was this very strongly held belief that God did have control over what happened in the afterlife, but God wasn't present there. There's a lot of talk in the Hebrew Bible, specifically in Genesis, in the book of Psalms, and in Second Kings, that God's realm, like God's, where God reigned was in the clouds in the dome above the earth. And God would look down upon humanity and say, you know, I don't, uh, almost very literally, I don't know why humanity considers them, themselves worthy enough to have me even look at them. Um, and so super, super nice guy. Oh Just, yeah. Yeah. Like he's, I mean, really like that, that's what you want to, that's what you want to worship. I guess the same God who drowned all of humanity, except for one guy and his family um, and their boat. Yeah, totally. Like it, it <laughs> lo- loving, loving dude. Just yes. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, you know, that's sort of where a lot of the concepts are in the, um, in the Jewish faith, or at least in the, the Hebrew Bible around the afterlife. Um, there's some other deities that sort of pop up here and there. Um, but, you know, otherwise that's more or less what comes out in the Hebrew Bible. When we get to the New Testament, that idea of Sheol is still there. Um, but we get this interesting new idea. And so in a couple of uh, different versions of the Bible, Jesus will talk about hell in a couple of passages. There's a couple notable ones in Luke and in Mark where uh, Jesus says something along the lines of, you know, people get thrown into the lake of fire and they suffer there in the flames and they scream and they weep and they gnash their teeth. But the interesting thing is when you get back to the earliest translations that we have in Greek, the name is actually Gehenna or Gehinnom. And what that is, is it's an actual, actually a very specific location on the southern part of Jerusalem. Um, it was called, uh, if you translate it from Hebrew, it means the Valley of Hinnom, which was this pit where they would, where the Israelite people would throw waste, they would throw human waste, they would put animal carcasses, and it basically was just this, this ever blazing fire because people just kept throwing waste in there and yeah. and, and animal carcasses, but they also threw prisoners in there too. Um, so, so people who were punished for crimes, to, to certain crimes that warranted. Um, uh, you know, a death penalty that they would throw them into this fiery pit as well. So it was a literal fiery pit. Yes, it was a very literal, yes. not a not a supernatural one that yeah. was, you know, it, somewhere in the earth's core or something along those <laughs> lines. And um, I think it's also very important to point out, and I, I sort of skipped over this when talking about the Hebrew Bible, but um, the the Jewish belief around punishment and reward was that it happened in your earthly life, that it happened while you were a human being on the planet. So um, the book of Job is a perfect example of this because Job, for those unaware, is this character who 
you know, has all this wealth, all these possessions, this land. He's got a lot of sons and daughters. And God makes a bet with with the Satan. It's not Satan. It's it, it, the adversary of God. This is actually a character who is on God's divine counsel. And this adversary says to God, you know, I bet you that we can take all that stuff away from him. We can make this guy, forgive the pun, his life a living hell. And... Uh, and he's going to lose faith in you. He's not going to trust you anymore. And God's like, ha ha, I'll have none of that. And he lets him do whatever he wants to him, which results in all his children dying, his wife leaving him, his, you know, cattle dying, his property burning. He gets boils all over his body, like really gets put through the ringer. And so there's this one section where he has three friends who approach him. And one of them says to him, the reason this is happening to you is because you're a sinner. God does not do this to people who are righteous. And so the, the idea with the Jewish people during this time was if you were given wealth and good fortune and good things happened to you, it was God rewarding you. But if you were a leper, if you uh, became ill, if you had a family member who died, in fact, if you died, it was because you were a sinner. You, you did something to piss off God. Um, How do they reconcile that with like, you know, a child that dies at birth? It was just that they just uh, don't, right? Well, it's that's an, that's an interesting concept because depending who you talk to, there's a specific passage in Deuteronomy that says that the the child shall not uh, be punished for the sins of the father, and vice versa. So, um, so the knee jerk reaction, especially that a lot of people will say, is, "Oh, well, it's original sin." Well, that passage from Deuteronomy sort of nicks that one in the bud, um, but it also suggests that you know maybe there was something wrong with the child, that maybe the child was sinful. But there's also the idea, too, because we we see a lot of this in the New Testament, that there was possession and, um, you know, beasts that were taking over people's bodies and committing and making them attempt ferocious sins. So it could have been argued at that time, and I don't know with 100% certainty, but it could have been argued that, you know, this child was born sinful because they were possessed, or um, there must have been some devil work with the pregnancy. So there were all these sort of supernatural um, explanations for things like these. And oftentimes, again, because there was death involved, if you read, it's, it's, this is really uh, elaborated in the letters of Paul, where Paul says, you know, the, um, the punishment for sin ultimately is death. So if you died, it was because you were a sinner. And that's sort of a, a, a common theme we still see in evangelical circles, that the only reason death happens, forget that, you know, all this medical technology has come along and really <laughs> explained a lot of the reasons why people die and explained, like, what happens to the cell makeup of our bodies and everything and why we eventually die. But no, 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 no. It happens because you sinned. So uh, a lot of that is, is carried out from this time frame, too. And that fetus knows what it did. <laughs> So there's the whole, you know, biblical side of what is or isn't, you know, considered part of, of this afterlife. But what I really like that you did, Matthew, in your book was take take the scripture, but then take a scientific approach to looking at all of this and really examining, like, is, is there an afterlife? Is there a soul? Like, what what happens after our time on Earth is, is done? Um, and so I guess, like, Let's talk about death a little bit. Um, like how? So you de- you define death, I think, essentially as like irreversible cessation of life, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the chapters in your in your book that I mean, I, I think I sent you a message about it when I was reading. Um, 
we were ta- you kind of talked about like what's the difference between being an actual person and being a human being like what does it really mean to like be alive in a sense um you gave a story about like jane and sally you know what i'm talking about in the book like yes can you can you kind of describe that a little bit because i this this was very interesting to me as i was reading because it kind of made me think about just what it is to be a living yeah. person yeah yeah so um and please correct me if i'm wrong i think i've i've got the right reference in my head but so the uh, the example i had set up is okay if we have these um these two women they're traveling in the car together and mm-hmm. they get into a horrific accident yes th- this um, is totally yeah. okay so one of the women um her body is completely mutilated, but her brain is still un- intact and not damaged at all. Um, and you know, like there's there's signs that she's still alive, but it's very likely that she'll never be able to use her body again. Whereas the other woman uh, who was in the accident had significant brain trauma and would not have any chance of of coming back to life. So. In a, in a hypothetical, extremely advanced situation where doctors could do this, they go in and they surgically remove uh, the brain from woman number one and put it into woman number two's body. And so the question is, okay, even though woman number two, like her body is still fully intact, any of her friends approached her would know her as woman number two, she would have woman number one's brain in her head. So when she wakes up, her consciousness, her memory, uh, everything that she, like how she talks, her mannerisms, how she acts are all the, the identity, identity, identity parts of woman number one. So the question is when woman number two, that, that being wakes up, who, who is that person? Is it woman number one or woman number two? See, and like, and thinking about that, like, I'm, I'm inclined to say it's, it's the person who's like brain and mannerisms and like feelings and person, like personality. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like we're that, like that, that's who we are, isn't it? Maybe. I feel like, I feel like a more plausible situation. Again, this is like two, five, six thousand years uh, <laughs> away, but I, I, I would think it would be more more easy, easily done to download somehow all the thoughts and, and memories and things that you have, and and then take that and put it into a, onto a computer, and of course by that time we would have you know AI would be uh, probably already running the world if not uh, uh, pretty close, but. I mean, that, that seems more plausible to me would be to just download you somehow from from your head onto a computer and then but, we can put you into another person's body like that. Right. So but it but it's still personality and yeah. feelings and memories and all of that. So it's it's your. That, yeah, that's that's yeah. how I that's how I figure that it would it's person number one, because like we're just walking sacks of meat that yeah. have something that tells us where to go and. And how to how to grunt the right way to one another to communicate. Well, and then and then Matthew also in the book brought up um, the that Terry Shivo case from like I mean that that's a long, that's a while ago now at this point, but but the idea I mean this this woman was essentially on like life support right and yeah. but not not functioning as a as a person, but she was a body right. 
I mean, I, like, I, I'm I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the this of course person, no, no. but no. but it's like, but it makes you think, like, if if a person gets to the point where they are essentially just a, you know, being kept alive physically. I mean, what you what are, what are you at that point? You know. So yeah. I don't know. It's just like I, it, this. This is all very interesting to me. Um, giving giving some thought to this stuff and. I mean, Matthew, as you were writing it, did you like come to any personal, like, have any revelations or conclusions? Well, well, for for me, what it what it really outlines more than anything is the more advanced we we get with our technology, the finer the line becomes between life and death, really. Because I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Terry Schiavo, as, as as much as her parents might have argued for. Like, yes, she was alive, but she was not alive as herself. Like you said, she was more or less just this, uh, you know, the again, not to be disrespectful at all, but because we, you know, she had no, no ability to, to communicate. I mean, if you contrast this even with someone like Stephen Hawking, who is still incredibly limited in his mobility and his ability and his ability to communicate, but he still at least has enough where he can communicate through a computer through um, other various means. Like I know he has been working with someone um, with typing out like new uh, concepts and new um, new ideas that he has come up with. And from what I understand, because he's also you know getting older, that it's become more slower, and you know his disease is progressively getting worse for him. But that aside, you know Terry Shavo didn't even have that sense of mobility about her where she could do anything that would uh, give any sort of indication of how she was feeling, how she was thinking, maybe the type of music she wanted to listen to or food she wanted to eat. I don't even think she could eat on her own. At no, I, th- I think that, I think that that was an issue too. It was because it was, um, she was being fed through a feeding tube. And if I remember correctly, I mean, that, that was part of the whole thing too, is like, at one point, at what point do you stop those measures? Yeah. Um, and, and so she was, you know, uh, a human being because she was a she was alive but the personhood seems like it maybe disappears at yeah. some point yeah huh? and and so that i mean that ultimately is is what sort of drove the um the one of the more major points that i was arguing for in the book which is that you know our our consciousness our sense of self our personality all that is tied to our brain and very much like uh, our brain is a computer for ourselves. If you, you know, take your computer and you slam it against the ground and suddenly your screen is destroyed uh, and you can't see it anymore, well, that's because you damaged the computer. You damaged one of the most important parts of it, and now you're going to have an incredibly difficult time doing any of the tasks you had some use before. Um, and so, you know, with the brain damage that was caused to Terry Schiavo through, uh, through was a heart attack, I believe it was, that ended up, creating all the problems for her, but she was, her brain ended up becoming so incredibly damaged from that, that she really had no ability to, uh, to self-sustain. And so she needed all this machinery to keep her alive. And that again goes, you know, back to that point that I was making that with the more advanced our technology becomes, the thinner that line comes between, you know, what is considered alive and what's considered death, because they could have at any point just flicked a switch and she would have shut off and been considered dead. So um, that's, I mean, that's ultimately what I was trying to get at with that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, so there's life, there's death. And then there's, I think, people who hope that, that there is something afterwards and they hope that the soul continues. And like, and one, I, I will say one of my, one of your, the best things I think that you wrote in this book, just one sentence that I wrote down um, when I was reading is belief in an idea doesn't make it a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, let's apply that to so many things, but, um, but the soul, right. I mean, you, people, I think want to believe, right. And there's a staggering number of people who believe in like reincarnation or, you know, somehow continuing after this, but looking at this from a scientific perspective, like what, what did you learn about the possibility of, of a soul existing? Um, I mean, what I really learned is that there's, there's no possibility of a soul. Um, I, so one of the things I was really excited to tackle with this section was, um, I remembered, from when I was maybe the beginning of my college years or maybe the end of my high school years, I had watched this short, um, it wasn't a documentary, but just this short, uh, like 30 minute, it might've been something like unsolved mysteries or something like that, where they talked about this doctor who weighed bodies as people were dying. And when the people died, you know, the, the weight shifted and they lost weight and, oh my God, he really proved that people have a soul. And if you go and you actually look at the study that this person conducted, it happened in the, the beginning of the 20th century. It was, um, it was done in like 19, like literally within the first 10 years of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he was doing it in uh, a tuberculosis house. Like people who were like, they have tuberculosis, they're going to die. This is basically their final resting place or the, the place where they're going to live out the, the last few days that they have left. And so he got all these people to, all these people, there were six total uh, people that he was able to conduct these experiments with, and none of them played out the same way. He had one patient who, when they died, lost weight, but wasn't able to replicate that in any of the five other times, because there were situations where people lost weight and then gained it back. There were situations where people gained weight, and then there were situations where people lost no weight at all. And so... He's still like, because he was sort of this person who tackled science more for the fame than for actually making any type of discovery, brought his finding out to the press and said, oh, look what I did. Here's my findings. And look, this person lost weight when they died. So that means there's a soul. And the, you know, it was in Massachusetts. So the local press like just jumped all over this, blew it up and was like, oh my God, this amazing discovery. They've proven that there's a soul once and for all. Um, But other scientists came out and were like, he did it on six people and didn't get the same results <laughs> anytime he did it. So, like re- really uh, small sample size and really inconsistent results, but, <laughs> yeah, but still, exactly. soul. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting to note too, there are other people who have carried out similar experiments, not with humans, but there is a farmer that, uh, that was doing it on his sheep when they died. And it was sort of the same thing. Like the results were all over the place. He could never get a consistent find. And he wrote it off as just like, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. It's like, no, no. <laughs> like there should be a consistent result with this and there's not. Um, but then there was another guy who took the same results and then hypothesized, well, a soul must weigh this much. Um, and by the way, this is how much Jesus' soul weighs, which is uh, apparently <laughs> according to him, because he's Jesus, it was close to a full pound. 
Um, oh. But that's a heavy soul. That's a lot of soul. It makes, it, it, and it makes sense that they would use, uh, uh, you know, imperial instead of metric. <laughs> that's, that's a topic of a different well, podcast. Well, he used metric, but it was equivalent to. A, oh, okay. I just remember, like it's it said in the the book I was reading that it was almost a full pound, but he caps that argument off with, and this is how much a leprechaun soul would weigh. <laughs> what? What? We go from Jesus to leprechaun? Well, I guess because they're yeah. just as real as each other. So yeah. in yeah. that sense. Wow. <laughs> okay. See, it's like, then they just get silly with it. And it's like, how do you take that seriously? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the part that get, gets silly? Okay. <laughs> Gotcha. Gotcha. That's where we're drawing the line. <laughs> I, 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 my line is at leprechauns, guys. That's, okay. that's Good it. That's it. That's, that's my, that's my like magical creature line. Leprechauns. They, yeah. So, well, oh, sorry, but, no, no, you, I, I'm at leprechauns. Well, you keep the, going. Okay. <laughs> um, so lucky charms for breakfast tomorrow. Um, yes. but, but the, the really interesting thing about all of this and this, really ties into to all of it, sort of the big eye-opening thing for me. I mean, this this was sort of a point for me that was very, very similar to that moment where I, I came to the realization that God doesn't exist and the religious beliefs I followed, you know, aren't real, uh, which was, I, I had gone into writing the book and thinking about it with, you know, it's very unlikely that it exists but maybe we just don't know enough about it. I still had this really incredibly selfish part of maybe there's a chance that, you know, my consciousness continues after I die. And then Sean Carroll comes into the picture and completely smashes that concept for me. Um, where, you know, Sean Carroll is this, uh, I believe he's a theoretical physicist. Uh, I could be mistaken on that, but I know he works with quantum mechanics specifically mm -hmm. in the realm of physics. And he had said, okay, so the the area that i really focus in my work these these are his words paraphrase um not my own i should say but uh you know he said the area that that i really work in you know we know how everything affects uh everything else on a quantum level that there are really these four um very very minuscule particles that make up everything there are these four little quarks and so you can imagine it this way. If the, imagine that there are four people on rowboats out in the middle of a lake and they're grouped relatively close together, close enough that one of them has a sack of potatoes and he takes it and throws it to one of the other boats. So the person in that boat catches it and when he catches it, the waves that he creates by catching the potatoes end up affecting the other three boats. And that's sort of how this realm of physics works, where when one area is active or is affected by something interacting with the physical world, whether it's a, um, a photon that pops in and out of existence very quickly, um, or it's something like somebody, you know, breathing or walking along the sidewalk, you know, we, we can see all that effect in the quantum realm based on these four little particles because they create waves when they're affected and it affects the other three. The thing is we would be able to detect, to detect any supernatural element that came into our world or that was leaving from our world. And we don't see that. So these, these four little particles like give no indication that there's anything that leaves our body when we die or that God's hand comes out of the clouds and, you know, 
zaps down a member of ISIS when they've you know heard a Christian or anything. Yeah, like that. The, the group the group that he created in the first place. Mind yes, you. yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there there's nothing there like in the laws of physics, huh? That just like would allow or or show that our consciousness like continues. Yeah, and the after. and it's it, thank you for bringing up the consciousness aspect because the important thing to note too is that with our own consciousness, that is something that we can actually trace in our minds with the neurons that are in there. So there is this very physical, very real thing that, that takes place in our heads that moves around when we create thoughts, when we create memories. And, you know, how does a physical thing attach itself to an immaterial thing like the soul and then take off somewhere? The, the likelihood of anything like that happening is completely improbable and unrealistic. So it's, it's unlikely that even if there was such a thing as the soul, that any of our consciousness would travel along with it too. So, so there's, there's no afterlife and there's no soul. So my question for you guys, as we kind of like come to the, the end of this discussion is like, what, what does this mean for, for us now and how we live our lives? Like as people who understand this, that there's nothing after. I mean, the, the most literal way that I've ever used this word, yellow. I mean, because you, you literally only live once, don't you? I mean, it, it's true. And, and I mean, I, I think, but see, for me, I guess I feel like it makes it all more meaningful that, that we're living for what we have now. And like, we, yeah, like we might be these like little insignificant specks on the planet, but like we, we can do good things with the time here. And that's that's something I never understood was why if if a theist honestly believes that the afterlife is going to be perfect and they're going to have like every single like dog that they've ever owned and goldfish and grandma's going to be there and then grandma's 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 going to be in and it's going to be just the best thing ever. Like why take diabetes medicine? Like why even bother? Why why get chemo? For, for your cancer like why why wouldn't you do everything or not do anything to postpone that if if that is truly like what you believe i don't have an answer for that one i don't either it's, it's but that is the argument i usually use when yeah. christians tell me i should just kill myself um <laughs> it's like you, you've got this backwards um, but they, they, yeah, and they, they, but they're morally superior to you too. Just, yeah. just in case you didn't know, in case you forgot. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, they do have that God that you know questioned why humanity thought they were worthy. So, um, but, but you know what, what I think it ultimately means to me is you know like, um, like Natalie was saying, you know, this it, it makes the life we have more meaningful. Um, it makes you know the actions that we have, the friendships that we create more meaningful we should be taking you know this the um we should be taking our actions seriously we should you know think before we act especially when we go to the the voting booth uh too little too late i know but um but or or if we don't go to the voting booth at all well 2018 you guys 2018 everybody's gonna do the right thing for sure yeah um but, but the other end of it too is i think if we can get more people to understand this and to really realize this is the only life that we have we'll stop having people what i would hope at least is that we'll stop having people who 
you know, do horrendous things towards other people, that they'll stop infringing on others' rights to, you know, just live as who they are and stop making people fearful to live in the closet because if they come out as who they are, whether it's because of their gender identity, sexual orientation, the uh, the political ideologies that they have, or even the religious beliefs or lack thereof, you know, these people don't hide out of fear that they're going to be attacked because, you know, we're supposed to kill infidels, we're supposed to stone homosexuals or people that um, were born anatomically male but identify as female and vice versa. So, um, but we also have situations where in the Middle East there are incredibly large numbers of honor killings that happen because the families feel that dishonor is brought upon the family because of one action or another. It's typically an action carried out by a woman and um, and they think that in order for their family to be uh, to be brought on the right side of, uh, of God that they need to kill this person and so they end up um, taking the life of somebody else so that their family can uh, can receive reward in the afterlife what they believe is coming in the afterlife and so you know I think it would would do a huge service to people who are victims of such behavior. Um, it, it would do a, a huge favor to them in order to like prevent that from happening and prevent people from thinking like, I've got to do this here and now because after I die, this is what I want to have happen. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we, we've gone to this little like theme on a number of the shows when we touched on kind of atheists and secular topics of, you know, they're like, being a little like life's a little bit better without the the pressure of the God issue. And, you know, you don't have to have God to be good and life, you know, you don't have to have promise of an afterlife to live a good life now. And it might actually be a lot lighter and better of a life without the fear and worry of what's coming next. It's, it's because we, it's the adult equivalent of your parent, uh, a parent telling a child, well, you better be good or Santa won't bring you any presents. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of is. And so, so yeah, Matthew, I, like, I, I will say when I, um, kind of concluded reading your book, like, it's, it's funny how, you know, at the same time, you're essentially saying, okay, like, there's nothing after this. But as I read it, like, I mean, cause you, you know, you added your own personal touch to it, like, it felt hopeful and it, it like, I, it touched me when I read it. So, so I think, you know, it's a misconception that like, it's not just this cold idea that, well, there's nothing after, so there's no meaning now. It's like the meaning comes from now and it's our job to, you know, make the most of it for ourselves and for other people, like, because we have to be good to each other too. And now more than ever, I think that's the message that needs to be sent out there into the world too. Awesome. Thank you. And I really appreciate you saying that because I really was worried like people are going to be so depressed after reading my book. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that it, there was, a, you know, something positive you took out of the end of it, too. So that that gives me hope and makes me feel a little rewarded. So, yeah. Well, well, um, so thank you so much for, for talking to us. And, you know, we'll have links to, you know, your books and everything in the notes for the show. But if people want to, like, follow you on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, where, where can they find you on the Internet? Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at M-W-O-N-E-I-I. -I. Someone else had the name. <laughs> There's no variation of my name on Twitter that wasn't already taken. So the last I is capitalized. Um, 
So M-W-O-N-E-I-I. And you can like my Facebook page, my author Facebook page, facebook.com slash you say that I am. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm sure you'll talk to us again sometime and, you know, I'll see you around on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. hope so. Thank you. <laughs> All right. The reason we love the internet this week, we are very happy to have Matthew return after he had already done an interview with us to talk about this reason we love the internet because I think that the reason we love the internet this week is the thing that made Matthew and I realize that we're kindred spirits um, in a way because it's it's evil Kermit memes and the one I want to start with is one that I have saved on my phone because this is my life story. Um, it says, me, don't be a weirdo at this social event. Me to me, um, give unnecessary information to strangers about Jeffrey Dahmer. And that's that's the Natalie Newell story right there, I think. Um, and I saw this I one. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Wait, hold <laughs> on. You don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? No, 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 no. I know that part. But it's like I don't know what the second part's supposed to mean. It's you don't understand it. It's like you're you're saying to like first you're like okay I'm going to be normal and then like your inner self is like no tell people about cannibals like I I mean you don't it's get the it? inner struggle. It's the it like is. I want to be pro social and likable and have people think that I'm normal and then the inner struggle of this is what I really want to do and I know it's going to freak everyone out. Yeah, and so and so I, I, I found mean, that I've one. Never, I've never. Ever had that thought in my head? I mean, I'm 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 not I'm I'm more asocial than anti. It's antisocial. is like seeking to destroy social situation. I'm just a, like I just don't want to be around people. Like I'm literally home alone right now. Like I mean, my kids well, great yada yada yada, but like otherwise, like leave me alone. <laughs> oh no! See, I just thought it was funny because it's like I just like to talk about weird stuff, and I saw that one. I think right before. Before or after I recorded that episode about cannibalism that is coming out later this month, um, I did with Buck and James, and it's just like, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of what my Chrome browser tabs are right now is weird shit, <laughs> and you know, it is, it is, it is the inner struggle to know when you can talk about weird things with people, and so, so Matthew, we could talk about weird stuff, and, and yeah, it's just, it's just funny, it's just funny, Dan. <laughs> Well, I, th- I, I, t- I looked at it in two ways. One was the way that I just described of like that inner struggle of I want people to like me, but I also really am tempted to be weird because that's how I really am. But the other side of it too is like, it's sort of those internalized thoughts you've had if you've ever worked with other human beings. If it's, you know, just in like a coworker situation, or even if it's, you know, uh, if, like working in food service or customer service of some type. Um, I mean, like people spout off weird things and you know, it's like, I don't want to offend them because I'm around these people and, you know, I, I don't want to have a, a nasty work atmosphere. So it's sort of like, oh yes, tell me more about your religion. Meanwhile, inside you're like, tell them you worship Satan <laughs> yeah. or something yes. along those lines. It is. So, it is. 
it's the inner it's the inner struggle. Okay, Dan, here. I found one on the Twitter account that may, like maybe hears you. Maybe, maybe. All right. So me, I'm not gonna get mad, it's just a video game. And then other me, so like the evil hooded Kermit is like, tell him he's trash, you're gonna kill his family and rage quit. Like, is that what people do in video games? I mean No, okay, all right. It doesn't I'm it doesn't trying. happen as much as you think, but okay. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. it happens. When it when it does, you're just like, oh, well, then there's this asshole. I mean, at least I'm like that. Like yes. I, I don't yes. get upset. Oh, here, here. I, I mean, because just... that requires me to feel feelings in the first place. So, you know. Okay. I, all right. I found, I found one. I found one, maybe. I think it's all the right, one so, that I'm looking at right now. So me, she's asking what I do yeah. for work. Should I tell her I make memes? Other me. No, you are a social media content creator. Yeah, exactly. That's you. Yeah, I mean, that, right, that's I, you. There, that, that's, there's your, that's what you are. That's, that's not your... even, that's, that's not even, and in full disclosure, like I base, like when I'm t- meeting somebody on Tinder or whatever, and like they're like, "Oh, what do you do for fun?" And I'm like, "Well, I have this thing," and like, like their response to that is kind of like an indicator of how much I'm going to get along with this person. Some people are like, "Oh, that's cool. Let's talk about this." And I'm like, "Whoa, but ooh, I need to not say that." <laughs> <laughs> You're like, whoa, lady. <laughs> whoa, like, lady. Whoa, who, who, who whoa. See, no, I see that makes me like I hate that I can't say that because I feel because I would say like, whoa, dick. But like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I feel about it. that's the topic of another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. I'm like, whoa, lady. I don't think we're going to get along very much. <laughs> So, Good so Kermit. Right. Tell them everything's all right. Bad Kermit. Play along with it. See how deep he goes. Yeah. See, like all, all of them. It's just. It is. It is the. It is the inner. The inner struggle. That's what. That's what the. That's what the evil Kermit is. And I just like. I don't know. I. I think it's. I think that they're funny. And Dan obviously is like meh. I don't know. <laughs> That's, I mean, mm, eh. I could take it or leave it. You, you take it or leave it. That that's fine. It's it's just a lot of the exact same format for me. Yeah. So you 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 need your memes a little more varied. Uh, and I mean, I need something. It's 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 one of those. It's just funny for a little bit, but damn, like I'm looking at like <laughs> like it it needs it needs like more a lot more of it. So I mean, it's obviously just yeah. It, yeah, it's, there's not it's, enough Harambe for with, you. I mean, I would have to, I have to, have to scroll back a lot here. I have to imagine. Yeah, see, like, have to imagine and, see, because I have, I have some that I just have saved on my phone. Like me, well, I just woke up, time to be productive. Me to me, stare at your phone in bed for an hour. That's that's me. Well, see, I. But that's me like waking up at weird times throughout the night, and then I'm like, oh, let me just let me check Twitter because I need to see what just, yeah, what's I'll happening just, on Twitter che- at two a.m. because that's important. Yeah, I'll just check my page for a second, and then three hours later, right? See, like that's yeah, that's my that's my Kermit struggle, just staring at my my phone, which is actually just cracked to shit at the moment too. Like, so I'm just staring at a cracked screen and memes. Because we're all addicted to technology. <laughs> all of us. I think. <laughs> Pretty much. I think my evil Kermit is 
oh, the kids are waking up. I should probably get up and change them and bring them downstairs for breakfast. Then there's the inner me, which is someone else will figure it out sooner, sooner or later. <laughs> oh, my God. That, that is, yes, I agree with, with that one. It, or, or it's just like, Pretend you're asleep be, still. Yeah, they'll be okay for a few more minutes. Like, while I check Twitter... And while I like get myself <laughs> completely ready for the day, no, I no actually I, I'm it's more like just during the night I definitely check my my phone. But in the morning I'm I'm more just like okay, kids are they're kind of talking to themselves, but they're ha- having important conversations that I will not interrupt them from just yet. And they I, and they actually stash Legos in their room too, um, and entertain themselves so. I, my evil Kermit's okay in the morning then, because I just let him, let him be. I think. I mean, you leave kids alone with Legos long enough, you'll come and find something built sooner or later, I guess. Yeah, totally. They yes, built or or they're all just scattered, like in a pattern that seems like okay. You've put these out in the most impo- like annoying way to clean up, like one every couple of fe- like. Like the rug is just a landmine of very small pieces of Lego, and it's just fun for for the whole family to clean up and try not to step on. I've actually started wearing shoes more in the house um, <laughs> because, I mean, that fucking hurts. And then you find that- out some odd years later that that was actually like his modern art piece that you had completely destroyed, and he's going to go to a therapist about it. Oh my god! Mom destroyed oh, it no. and didn't even appreciate it. I I'm know. Sorry. So, I'm sorry. I'm getting anxiety describing that now. <laughs> oh man! I, so so I am I am in a constant state of like messing up their lives. Constant Legos, everything. Yeah. All right. Well, See, it's being a parent. I, do, I, I just, guess. I just I just sleep until about three o'clock in the afternoon and figure that they'll they'll figure it out eventually. They'll just they'll just get themselves get themselves set and. We got to teach them independence somehow. Yeah, I, I think, see, I guess I can't do that yet with a, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. They're not, they're not there yet. <laughs> they, they are not self-sufficient humans. Like, one can just about go to the bathroom by himself without me. We're small steps, small steps, guys. I'm, I'm getting there, Maybe. My children think that Cheetos are breakfast and that pulling the hooks off of the ornaments on the Christmas tree is appropriate. So, no, we're not there yet. <laughs> but you know what? Is anyone ever there? Really? We're all we're all evil Kermit. <laughs> if you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash TSE podcast to get access to premium content such as extended interviews, early episode access, and other goodness. And Natalie and I would appreciate you buying us a beer or two, or I'm sorry, she's she's classy. She drinks bourbon. Yeah, keep it classy. <laughs> we understand not everyone can afford to financially contribute to the show, and that's totally okay. Just tell your friends about us. That's how we will continue to grow. But if you could, just like James, Alice, all four of these Michaels, Chris, Sarah, Janet, Amanda, Astrid, Andrew, Jeff, Susan, and Trevor have done, we would be incredibly grateful. Natalie, hit us with a quote. A belief in an idea doesn't make it a real thing. And that is from Matthew O'Neill, our wonderful guest tonight. So thank you again to Matthew for 
being an awesome guest and and he also listens to the show so thank you matthew for like for listening to the show yeah it's awesome that's really cool um next week uh we're gonna have an interview with um dr sean sellers um he is a dentist so we talked a lot about um dental woo type of stuff and he's also um one of the hosts of the last tuesday project podcast so we talked about podcast stuff um skepticism and we we ended by talking about music because why not so it, it was a really fun interview with a good friend and uh excited to share it with the listeners next week and um yeah all right we'll see you next week bye everybody The music you heard tonight was written and performed by Adam Johnson and was used with his permission. You can contact Adam at adamjohnsondc at gmail.com. This podcast is property of Not Narrow or Straight LLC, all rights reserved.